Joe Biden scored a thundering victory Saturday in South Carolina's Democratic primary, and it was on the strength of African-American support. It was expected that Biden would win by 70 percent. But when the votes were all counted, he won by a whopping 96 percent of the vote, uh, leaving very little chance for his two competitors, Marianne Williamson and Dean Phillips, uh, pretty much both of them, unless they make some dramatic turnarounds uh, with the voters, they are likely to be out of this race before we get to Super Tuesday. And Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel is on his last legs. Now, this is what many experts uh, believe. They believe that he will be forced to relinquish his post once the war against Hamas in Gaza ends. Now, he has uh, historically been unpopular in opinion polls, and he has been blamed for the governmental and security failures that led to the October 7th attack by Hamas that left 1,200 individuals uh, in Israel dead. And Sunday night was the 66th annual Grammy Awards, and Jay-Z accepted the Dr. Dre Global Impact Award. Now, Dr. Jay-Z has previously won 24 Grammys, but he did not treat the moment like it was a uh, you know, warm, welcoming homecoming. Instead, he used his speech to excoriate the Recording Academy uh, for what he calls its mistreatment and short shrifting of Black artists. He says, we want y'all to get it right, at least get it close to right. He also mentioned his wife, Beyonce, who's the winner of the most Grammys ever, Yet he said she's never won Album of the Year. Secretary of State Antony Blinken began a Middle East trip today that is meant to prevent a broader war in the region and to rally allies around a proposal to release hostages held in Gaza and pause the fighting there. Now, this is happening as the Biden administration pursues retaliatory strikes against Iran-backed militia that have targeted U.S. troops. And... In case you didn't know it, a strong Pacific storm system has been bringing life-threatening flooding and even heavy snow to California. This all started yesterday uh, and has been continuing today and is expected to continue throughout the week. So if you live in California, you probably want to stay in and stay safe because those roads are very wet and very dangerous. And during the 2022 Senate race in Pennsylvania, Sam DeMarco was outspoken about Democrat John Fetterman. He labeled him a fraud and a human wreck whose woke liberal policies would endanger Pennsylvanians. Well, DeMarco is the Republican Party chairman in Allegheny County, where Fetterman, now a senator, lives. At the time, he cascaded Fetterman is someone who kept finding a way to fall upward and question how any reasonable person could vote for him. Now, there's talk that Fetterman looks more like Sam DeMarco as a Republican than he does as a Democrat. And King Charles III has been diagnosed with a form of cancer and is suspending his public engagements to undergo treatment, casting a shadow over a busy reign that began barely 18 months ago. The announcement made today by Buckingham Palace uh, came a week after the seventy-five came a week after the seventy-five-year-old was discharged from a London hospital, and King Charles is talking openly about his prostate cancer and encouraging other men to make sure they get regular checkups. 
You are listening to Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. This is our two of Ariva Martin in real time. We're super excited today because uh, a new poll, an inaugural KBLA Talk 1580 political poll, was released today. And this poll was done primarily because too often political posters ignore surveying the Black community. And by ignoring us, they ignore and they miss important data about the way Black folks see the world and the unique way in which we see the world. So uh, KBLA commissioned its own poll, hired an expert polling company uh, that polled over 500 African-Americans in Los Angeles and now have compiled the results of this poll uh, in a report that you can actually go to right now on the KBLA 1580 website. You can download the app. You can access on the website this poll, the polling information. Some of the information in here is rather shocking. Uh, sh- some of it's a little confusing, particularly when you look at nationally uh, how African-Americans have responded to certain issues around public safety, uh, homelessness, uh, economic uh, you know, issues. Uh, But it's really interesting to see how differently, in some cases, Black voters are are thinking about issues. Uh, When we come forward, Akila Shirelles is going to join me. He is a community-based public safety expert. Uh, He actually founded a public safety firm, and he's uh, been involved in L.A. politics and also national He has a perspective about some of the findings in this poll that I think are going to be interesting. So we're going to spend some time in this hour just kind of unpacking what Black folks are really thinking, particularly in this election year. We have primaries coming up. Uh, Some states have already had theirs, like South Carolina did on Saturday, but primaries coming up in California. And then we're going to be uh, Super Tuesday in March. So I think it's critically important that folks know how Black voters in particular are thinking. So uh, hats off, kudos to KBLA for commissioning this poll and then making the results, the findings of the poll available on its website. So again, go to KBLA, uh, download the app, check out the website, get the uh, poll, the all the data, the report is there for you to see, for you to analyze, and for you to have a better understanding about how Black voters are thinking uh, so when we come forward, we're going to break all of that down for you right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, we are back, and Akila Shirelles is joining me, and he is the co-founder of Community-Based Public Safety Collective. He's a social justice leader, a spirited center activist, and he's been working on this issue of public safety for a while. Uh, So, Akila, one of the things in this report that came out, this poll, the KBLA Commission, a poll that does a deep dive in terms of how Black voters are thinking in this poll, I was told from the report, these are high propensity voters. So these are the black voters who are most likely going to be voting in the March primary and then uh, in the general election that will happen in November. So a majority, here's one of the findings from the polls that I found fascinating. 
a majority of Black folks who were polled feel less safe than they did a decade ago. Nearly 25% are related to or are victims of violent crime, and one in five have been the victims of a property crime. But what do you make of that first stat that Black folks overall, majority in this poll, feel less safe than a decade ago, particularly since we've been seeing some national numbers to suggest that crime uh, is, is trending downward? Are you surprised by this finding that Black folks in this poll feel less safe than they did a decade ago? Um, hey, Reva. Uh, thanks so much for having me on the show. Um, I'm not surprised, actually, um, in, in terms of... Uh, you know how black folks are feeling about you know the state of violence in in you know in the in in LA specifically right um yeah there is um you know um i think that there there've been two competing narratives you know that have been um you know happening in in the in the political space you know one has been essentially about defunding and and abolishing the police and then there's been one about um you know investing in more community-based solutions. And I think that for a long time, there was a real polarized conversation in, in terms of those two um, strategies. Um, but I, I, one of the things that we saw in the past couple of years is that the Biden administration had done a lot of work in terms of creating like kind of a both-and approach, right? That not only do we need, you know, more like kind of, um, you know, procedural justice around law enforcement, um, you know, and how they actually show up in community, but we also need to invest more deeply into community-based solutions. Now, here's the thing about um, public safety. You know, we live in a country where if you say public safety, people say police. Um, so much of our, our role, the public's role in safety has been advocated um, because public safety is a very abstract kind of like thing. Um, you know, and crime stats honestly say nothing about whether or not people feel safe. Right. You know, public safety is not just the absence of violence and crime. It's also the presence of well-being in the infrastructure to support victims and survivors in their respective healing journey. I, I think that it's important too, like when we when we say victim, right? Um, we also have to understand that that victim has a negative connotation in black communities, and black folks don't necessarily identify as victims. Um, so, mm. about ten years ago, I was instrumental in launching an organization called um, Crime Survivor for Safety and Justice, um, out of California's for Safety and Justice, right? Um, we, we are the agency that actually um, initiated Prop 47 that um, that um, was one of the, the most progressive um, criminal justice reform legislation in the history of the country. We took six low-level felonies in the state of California and made them into misdemeanors. And through that, um, some 300,000 people, you know, um, has had their records expunged. Some over 10,000 folks were released from jail who shouldn't have been there in the first place, right? Um, because many of those individuals had kind of mental health issues and, and uh, addiction issues. And we need to have a different kind of solution, right, to address those issues as opposed to locking people up in jail, right? And so I, I think that, uh, that you know, it's true, you know, Um you know, public safety, we, we have to develop like kind of complementary strategies and we have to develop like kind of new tools that we better survey. Um, and I, I so appreciate, you know, the survey that that, that KBLA has produced. Right. Um, because we have to start developing tools to actually service um, that that um, that survey the public so that we can get a better kind of like um, perspective and frame, you know, on on how we're holding ideas like safety in our own respective communities. 
So I'm glad you mentioned the work that you did uh, with that proposition that took those six low-level felonies and made them into misdemeanors. You know, during COVID, we saw like the rise, I don't know if it was the rise, but we just were home and we were watching it, of these smash and grab robberies, right? Where mm -hmm. all over the country, uh, groups of people, some kids, some teenagers, some adults were running into malls or running down Michigan Avenue in Chicago and slamming the windows of high-end stores, grabbing designer bags and designer goods. And that created this notion that, you know, crime was running amok. And even right. in high-end places like Beverly Hills, there are a couple of high-end uh, robberies where a person sitting at a restaurant with a $200,000 watch, I'm not sure why, but they are. And so somebody comes and, you know, jacks them for that watch. And then in the mayor's race, the Karen Bass, Rick Caruso mayor's race, crime was like the central issue. And I can remember talking to black folks who lived in Malibu, white folks that lived on the West side. And they were like, oh, Karen, I, I like her. She's this, she's that, but she's not tough enough on crime. We need someone like Rick Caruso, who's going to be tough on crime. And people were at, in the early stages of the race convinced that she could not beat him, not because she wasn't a better candidate, but simply on the issue of crime, they trusted him, a white male who had been on a police commission, who basically was a Republican and just registered as a Democrat as being tougher on crime. Now we can fast forward. We know how that election turned out. She beat him badly. Uh, and you know, that notion she was able to turn those people, a lot of those people who had this sense that she wouldn't be tough on crime, but to, I, I say all this to say, we seem to have this really complex and contradictory notion about crime in this country. We want there to be no crime and we want people to be tough on crime, but yet we want like your legislation, we want to take felonies, turn them into misdemeanors and give people a second chance and let people out. So how do you reconcile those? Because it seems to be all these different conversations happening at one time, because some of these same liberal people who were saying Karen wasn't tough enough on crime were people who supported progressive prosecutors who were going to, you know, try to address some of the systemic racism in our criminal justice system. That's right. I, I think that we have to move away from this narrative about being tough on crime and be smart on crime, right? The data says that 2% of the population is producing um, like 80 to 90% of the harm that are happening in communities, right? And so we got to be smart, right? We have to utilize data, you know, um, and technology as a way of being able to target that population, you know, of individuals who are actually committing violent crime and murder. Some 15, almost 20 years ago, um, prominent civil rights attorney, our sister Connie Rice, um, you know, who is the, the name behind the, the Urban Peace Institute, right? The Connie Rice um, Urban Peace Institute did a call to action in the city of Los Angeles, right? And one of the things that she she that, that came out of the report, she said less than three to five percent of so-called gang members are actually committing violent crime and murder, right? And so there is a narrative that's been sold for a long time. In, in terms of like who's creating violence and who's creating crime in neighborhood. The reality is, is that so many people are being failed by our criminal legal system, right? I mean, prevention strategies, um, you know, are, are being underfunded, right? And, and, and underinvested in. And so we, we see people, you know, we, 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 we see too many times where crisis is actually turning into crime um, because 
you know, when people are victimized, they don't get the proper, you know, um, healing support and, and trauma support that they need in order to heal from the traumatic experiences. Um, if we look at like kind of, you know, um, the history, right, of, of like, like in terms of, you know, um, our criminal, like kind of like legal system, right, in terms of law enforcement, um, we look at uh, clearance rates around homicides and around non-fatal shootings. This signals to you, you know, how people, how much people trust, you know, um, the criminal legal system, right? Um, if, if, if folks, if, if you have a, a very low um, uh, uh, clearance rate around non-fatal shootings, people are not going to, to the police to say, hey, um, you know, Pookie or Raheem shot at me and I'm seeking support from you to help me to solve this problem because they're not solving the problems as it is, right? And so this is why community-based public safety becomes extremely important as a complementary tool to our existing public safety infrastructure in this country. I mean, to see law enforcement or to think of law enforcement um, as this single ubiquitous institution that's responsible for us for safety in our community is really just a false narrative, right? Because law enforcement is only one aspect, you know, of our public safety ecosystem. Um, and, and and so for too long, right, um, when the, the totality of, of our uh, criminal legal system was about arrest and prosecution, right? But we forgot about the other most important part, which is to service the residents and the families of those who are victimized, you know, getting them healing and recovery services so that they don't become the, the next perpetrators of violence, right? Because in most cases, the number one preemptive cause of murder in our neighborhood is self-defense, you know, because how, because, you know, Black folks especially have gotten very little, um, like, kind of support, you know, from the criminal legal system when we're harmed in many cases. Um, this is why, you know, this whole narrative around victimization, the work that we did in California with Crime Survival for Safety and Justice was to change the narrative around um, the victimization, because most folks saw victims as upper middle class white women from suburbia. And, and I tell you this now, I mean, we empathize with the harm that they've experienced, but, you know, across the board, you know, black folks lead in every single category of victimization in the state, you know? Um, however, um, again, because of this narrative, right? Um, you know, it's it's just not uncommon, right? For for black or, you know, or, or, or a brown mother or father to have one child buried in the criminal legal system and one in the graveyard. You know, and yeah, so it was interesting. I guess the people during this again debate that care it's coming out of COVID again, those smash and grab property crimes primarily. Some involve you know people maybe getting physically harmed. The issue of crime took on new prominence because now it wasn't just uh neighborhood crime, it just wasn't urban crime, it was literally upscale neighborhoods across this country. I can remember going to Denver. Uh, coming right out of COVID and the mall was so heavily policed to go into one of these high-end stores. It was like one person at a time, an armed guard sitting, you know, or standing outside the store and this presence of almost like military presence to get into a store to shop. Right. But yet I think what always puzzled me was there was this push to do something, whether it was, Add more police with more guns. It was a push to do something. But we didn't see that. We don't see that same push when it comes to the, you know, the, the repeated crime, both 
violent and property that we see in some black neighborhoods. And it brings me to when we were having the conversation about defund the police during that period, a friend of mine who lives in Inglewood, California, a predominantly black brown community told me, hell no, she was adamantly opposed to any notion of defunding the police. And that those were people who obviously didn't live in her community because her community was so crime written in this particular neighborhood in Inglewood that she wanted more police, not less police. And so I want to talk about that because there's this notion somehow that all black folks hate the police, don't want police. But Absolutely. when you see amongst middle class homeowners like my friend, uh, high propensity black voters, oftentimes it's the opposite, that they are they want constitutional policing. They That's want right. good policing, but right. they don't want less police. And, you know, that was a big part of that whole debate about defund. We remember James Clyburn, you know, famously said, you know, it was sloganeering and he was really disturbed by the whole term. But we know there were lots of groups, Black Lives Matters and other uh, criminal justice reform groups that really had a notion of transforming our police departments and they ran up against some of these, like I said, middle-class black homeowners, voters who uh, were adamantly opposed to a restructuring of the police department in any way that would result in fewer police. And that, that, that was always an interesting conversation because I would interview these activists and they were adamant uh, that they literally wanted, you know, community public safety efforts uh, and not have police in neighborhoods. And then I would interview some of these, uh, you know, homeowners and they would say, absolutely positively not. Uh, I want more police. I need more patrol. I need more coverage. We don't see enough police. We, you know, they're never there when we need them. So uh, I want to talk, get into that conversation. Like how do you again reconcile these two things that seem to be at play in the black community? Uh, stay with us when we come forward, KBLA talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I am back with Akilah Shirils. He is a safety expert. He's a community activist, and he's been working on issues of public safety for over a decade now. And we're talking about this poll, a poll that was uh, summons or uh, actually initiated by KBLA. And it's a poll of black folks, 500 black folks in the city of Los Angeles. And KBLA took it upon itself to hire this expert polling firm to conduct this poll because too often the voices of black voters are left out of mainstream polls. And the reality is black folks care about some things that other uh, ethnic and racial groups care about, but there are some things that are different for us, that are unique to Black voters. And given how important this election year and the elections that are coming up both at the local and the national level, having some insights in terms of how Black folks are thinking is really, really important. And we're talking about this issue of crime because for me, Black folks have a love-hate relationship with the police. Uh, we grow up being taught in some ways to respect them and to revere them. And then we're also taught to fear them. You know, everybody is black has been given the talk about how to act uh, with police. But we have a lot of black families who go into law enforcement. It's a tradition, second, third, fourth generation. Uh, and we saw during COVID 
what some believe to be this rise in crime. And now crime stats, at least uh, national crime stats, say that crime is on the uh, decline, even places like Chicago that have you know had reached some peak levels in terms of violent crimes. Uh, but Black folks in this poll still say overall they don't feel safe, uh, which is an interesting uh, concept again. And But at the same time, Akila, something else in this poll about uh, crime is they also say that efforts to reform our criminal justice system have not gone far enough. And I think that's a really interesting perspective, too, because Again, a lot of the reforms mean doing what you did, which was getting your organization did, getting felonies uh, converted to misdemeanors, giving people uh, drug treatment programs, giving people community service and doing things to avoid incarcerating people, particularly first offenders, particularly people who are involved in nonviolent crimes, particularly those people who may have mental health, developmental disabilities or other challenges. But we know that Republicans in particular run on a message of crime is rampant in our cities. And, you know, now they, they're on this, you know, immigrants are coming into this country and they are criminals and they create a lot of fear. And so there's a lot of fear around crime because we know crime is one of those issues that during elections can motivate voters to, you know, vote for a particular candidate. So uh, when Black folks in this poll say they want to see the criminal justice reform go further. And I would go back to my Inglewood friend because she's a, she's my uh, litmus test for a lot of this. Mm-hmm. She is livid with the LA district attorney. And she says that but basically folks know you can go into Nordstrom's, you can go into any big department store, grab a bunch of merchandise and run out and you're going to get a slap on the wrist. You're not going to jail. And she thinks that this reform has gone too far and that the criminal justice system is not being hard enough. And that's why in her neighborhood, she says people are engaging in both violent crime and, you know, crimes involving property. So help us make sense of these competing narratives where you have some black folks in this poll saying there needs to be more reform, but we know there are black folks like my friend who feel like, you know, people are getting off. And she says, basically, the criminals all know. She thinks there's just a big conspiracy where they're like talking to each other saying, hey, you can do this because they've changed the law and you're not going to get any jail time for this. And, you know, if you send a 16 year old to do it, he's not going to get any time. So and and, people don't, I think, forget that oftentimes the black people can be very, very conservative on these issues. As liberal as we can be, we can also uh, be very conservative on these issues. So help us understand those those two competing mindsets in our community. Well, show me the data where, where you know, incarceration has actually reduced violence and crime, you know, um, because here, here's the thing, you know. Well, I don't uh, think the data supports that. You and I know that. But the narrative right. in this country is lock them up, that the That's only right. way to deal with a criminal or someone that commits a crime is to lock them up and throw away the key. And we're going to hear a lot of that. On the campaign trail, we've already heard a lot of it. We're going to hear even more of that, that Biden is soft on crime, right? That's what they're saying about the border. Biden is soft on the border. He's letting these criminals, you know, pour into the country, these criminals who are threatening your, you know, your livelihood. They're going to rape your women. They're going to, you know, break into your homes. An advertising strategy, you know what I'm saying? Then, because I tell you, you know, the Biden administration has probably done more for black folks in, in the history of any other president, 
um, in this country, right? Um, I, I'll point just to a few things, right? Um, first of all, the Safer Communities Act, you know, which was passed, um, you know, um, uh, last year in June, it'll be the one year anniversary in which, again, not only did Biden invest in, in procedural justice and reform for, for law enforcement, he's also invested heavily in community-based solutions, um, community violence intervention or what we call community-based public safety. The Safer Communities Act put $250 million in the hands of black and brown CBI or community-based public safety leaders in some, you know, uh, now it's um, in 29 states, you know, 79, you know, organizations across the country. I'm like, phenomenal work, right? Many of those cities, you know, where we saw the, dec the decrease in violence, but over 30 cities had at least a 10% decrease, you know, this last year in, in violence and overall crime, right? Um, this has contributed. I, I think that these community-based public safety organizations have contributed, you know, to, to, to the decline. Um, you know, and I don't think that uh, that that the Biden administration gets enough credit, you know, for for a lot of the work that they've done um, with with black and brown folks in communities all across the country in terms of, um, you know, uh, you know, reducing violence and crime. Right. And that's I, an excellent. Hold on, let me just stop uh, you. That's an excellent point. Just that, in terms of like. Hold on a second. Let me stop you. Kegel. That, that's an excellent point that Biden administration doesn't get enough credit for what it has done and that act, that $250 million. So why do you think we still have rappers in particular, entertainer types, you know, people with big profiles running around saying Biden hasn't done anything for the black community? Why is that narrative seemingly taking, you know, root? Two reasons. I think that one, um, you know, the administration hasn't done um, a a, a good enough job in terms of communicating the wins, you know, um, and the, the you know, the, the huge impact that it's had, you know, on community, one. Secondly, I think that a lot of people are really misinformed. People don't know how government works, you know. Remember, they took civics out of schools a long time ago for, for a reason, right? And so we don't know the function of, of city council and mayors and attorney generals and, and district attorneys. We, 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 we don't know. We don't know how these. Well, well, let me stop you, Keila. One of the reasons we think, well, I know we've heard some of these folk who are on the Trump bandwagon is in our country. There's this narrative that if you talk tough, if you talk about locking people up, you are the president, you are the leader that's going to keep me safe. So that's a part of this narrative that people have bought into that they say, oh, Donald Trump, he's so tough. You know, he's going to take those prisoners and push their heads into the wall and, you know, do all kinds of unconstitutional uh, violations of their rights. And, and people like that. Like, why do people think that's a good thing? Well, here, here's the thing that, you know, that that, um, you know, uh, narrative, right, has cost cities hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. Um, law enforcement, you know, um, traditionally, you know, um, the collateral impact that comes from pushing people's heads into the car. <laughs> And, and and locking people up unjustly has allowed has caused citizens right to sue you know cities states you know um counties um to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars now family when 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 um when the public wins like when these these folks who are victimized by law enforcement win these cases you know you know who pays for it we do yeah taxpayers, taxpayers. That's right. We pay for it. And so that means that there's less money for parks. There's less money for after school programs and social services. 
Dollars are taken out of all of those places when we're having to pay two, three hundred million dollars in lawsuits every year, you know, as a result of um, of um, excessive force issues and everything that are perpetrated by law enforcement. Right. And so I, I've, I've never been a part of the 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 fund, the police, although I understood the narrative and I understood what folks were saying, just the, the, the labeling in itself was very was was terrible. Right. I mean, I think that we all agree that there has to be reform, you know, within policing and that we have to reallocate dollars. One of the great examples of that was we saw in Newark, New Jersey, um, you know, Mayor Baraka, um, you know, utilizing the momentum for the public execution of George Floyd was able to move five percent of the police department's budget into a new office of violence prevention and trauma recovery and then put twenty two million dollars into community based organizations you know, to support his community-based public safety strategy. Now, Newark used to be on the top 10 most violent city list for almost 50 consecutive years. Now, since 2000, um, 2014, that the mayor, that Mayor Baraka took office, he's now have seven consecutive years in a row of, of decreases of homicide and overall violence in his city. And, and, and then with his, um, with the consent decree in place around law enforcement, right? Um, and so we know that arrest doesn't equate, you know, to safety. And it doesn't equate to a reduction in, in, in violence and crime in respective cities. What 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 you know what sustains like kind of um, reductions is when you in, invest in a community-based infrastructure, when you invest in community-based public safety, hiring residents in the neighborhood, training them as public safety professionals to intervene in mediate conflicts to peaceful resolve and prevent them from becoming retaliatory violence. So I'm glad you brought that example up of New Jersey, and you know, kudos to that mayor for doing that. Why do you think in this poll, uh, again, this KBLA uh, commission poll of 500 black voters across the city of Los Angeles, a majority say they feel less safe than a decade ago? So you look at what happened in Newark, you look at the investment you said Joe Biden has made, 250 million across the country, 30 cities or so, you know, a bunch of uh, nonprofit organizations working on the grounds. If that money is at work in cities like a Newark, uh, you know, and I don't know what this poll would, would say if this was actually a poll of Newark residents, but why do you think in Los Angeles in particular, people feel less safe than they did a decade ago? I would say, again, it's a marketing and advertising strategy, you know, because during the pandemic, although violence spiked in cities all across the country, just like in, in Los Angeles, violence spiked. If we look at the data from the city of L.A. for their gang reduction youth development program, in the areas where there were community violence intervention workers um, who are working on the ground, in all of the areas that there were community violence intervention workers, violence actually um, was flat. Violence did not spike in those respective communities. However, you don't you don't hear um, you know uh, that being promoted largely in a city like Los Angeles, right? Why? Because law enforcement is the most powerful lobby in the country. You know, they're 850 pound gorilla, you know, and community violence intervention is 35 pounds soaking wet. You know, mm. you don't hold, have... hold that thought for me, Q. Uh, when we come forward, I, I do want to talk about the power of police unions in particular, and then even their PR machine that keeps this narrative going. Because obviously, if you keep people convinced that there's a high rate of crime, then that in this country means you need more money for the police budget. Uh, stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. He's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. 
Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. Okay, you can find the results of this very, very fascinating poll on the KBLA website. Make sure you go and download the app, KBLA 1580, and find out what these pollsters found out about how Black voters are thinking about everything from public safety to homelessness, uh, to issues of economics uh, in the city of Los Angeles. We get a good snapshot, perhaps, of how they're thinking around the country. So, Akila, you mentioned uh, before the break about police and this 850-pound gorilla. What we learned during the whole defund the police movement was how powerful these police unions are and okay. how big and bloated their budgets are and how you know organized they are in terms of resisting any cuts to their budgets. And in some cities... Uh, there were cuts to the budget during this whole defund the police movement after George Floyd's murder. And a year later, those same monies that were cut were quietly moved back to the police budget. So we know police have a lot of control in terms of, you know, getting a cop fired can be incredibly difficult, even forcing them to bring back bad cops. They're allowed to do that in a lot of instances. Again, they control uh, that process. But this notion of the narrative around crime, I don't think we think enough about the role that police, police unions, police associations have in creating this narrative and the financial incentive. It's almost like, you know, we used to hear a lot about the Republicans because so many, uh, you know, Republicans had ties to folks who had big military contracts. So there was always this need to build up our military, the military budget, the military budget. And we knew that there were these big, contractors who were making billions and billions of dollars making, you know, uh, war artillery in some cases that we didn't even need. But again, the narrative was there that we had to be prepared. We all, you know, our military preparation was key. So is that happening with police or police responsible in some ways for this narrative that keeps people on edge and keep people thinking that we need to increase the police budget rather than invest in some of those community-based programs that you talked about? Absolutely. I mean, again, we live in a country, if you say public safety, people say police, right? Um, the, 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 the truth is, is that, you know, he or she who controls the narrative controls the game, as you know. And law enforcement has controlled the narrative around public safety for 100 years, right? Um, the, the LAPD has dozens of PIOs, public information officers. They have strategic relationships with, with, with you know, all of our local media stations. Um, they work with academia that actually produces the, uh, the narratives through, through data that says that we need more cops, even though it's not absolutely true. Right. Um, because, you know, uh, you know, groups like lead have done the reports, you know, 38 to 40 percent of 911 calls are for non-serious, non-violent crimes. Right. But still, violence was down um, last year um, in, um, in in L.A. and LAPD's budget ballooned. They still got three point two billion dollars. Right. I mean, what's the sheriff's budget? Something like two point seven billion dollars. Right. So if you look at like where our resources are going to. Right. They're going to, you know, to law enforcement to propagate this narrative that is not really true because violence is actually down, you know. Um, and so how do we begin to shift that type? But, of you know, Akila, a mayor or anybody running for mayor in any city that talks about cutting police, they're going to have a problem uh, with affluent white families who feel like, oh, my God, you know, that they are coming for our neighborhoods. And so, again, Many folks have bought into that narrative. How do we deprogram people around that? 
We have to invest more deeply in communication strategies that actually lift up the truth of actually what's happening um, in the public space, right? And we have to invest more deeply into community-based public safety strategies. You know, um, those individuals who are out there on the front line doing the work that actually is decreasing violence and crime all across this country. Um, you know, this week, right, um, is, is um, you know, the, the White House is launching, is, is hosting a, a huge event, um, you know, graduating some 31, like, kind of community violence intervention professionals out of, out of um, one of the uh, training academies in Chicago. We're starting now, we're only now starting to see, right, because of the Biden administration creating this, this, um, this uh, dual narrative, right, that, that doesn't just center police in public safety. I have the fortune of sitting in the White House, right, um, in, the, in the Rose Garden, um, and listening to the president and vice president say that police is not the only solution to violence in our respective communities, that we have to invest in community-based strategies. And he put his money where his mouth was, right? And so we've now start, uh, are, we're now starting to see the impact of that investment, you know, that's coming out of DOJ, right? I mean, last year alone, I mean, the federal government invested about $307 billion in public safety strategies um, across the country. A $250 million investment in community-based solutions is a drop in the bucket, you know? But we, we're seeing that investment like kind of rise. The president has um, this uh, Safer America's, you know, um, you know, act on the table in which he's proposing a $5.2 billion, um, you know, investment in more community-based strategies. We're not taking anything away from law enforcement because here's the, here's the reality. If you want to if you want to get rid of like kind of rogue cops in your neighborhood, you know, that are causing challenges and stuff, you make your neighborhood safer, you know. And, and so this has been our strategy um, to 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 create a parallel complementary strategy, you know, um, in the neighborhood that has the same goal of reducing violence and crime. The thing is, is that community based public safety does this work without the collateral impact, you know, of of you know, costly incarceration and, the, you know, how people get victimized when they go into the system. You see, that's one of the things that we don't, we, we rarely talk about, you know, is that people are already deeply traumatized and harmed, right? Because we have a one-sided criminal legal system or, you know, um, when people are harmed in neighborhoods, we deploy the police to apprehend the perpetrator, but we don't deploy therapists and healers um, and, 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 uh, and counselors in the neighborhood to help deal with the, the trauma, and so we allow it to ripple and fester in our respective communities. I'm talking about in black and brown communities, right? Mm -hmm. And so here's here's why I think that there is such a powerful narrative in this country around policing is because we haven't invested more deeply in communication strategies and also in community-based solutions that have really um, been the uh, the the uh, the reason why we're seeing we're seeing violence drop um, in neighborhoods and we're seeing crime drop in neighborhoods, right? Um, well, I, I think we're out of time. I mean, such great information, Akiva. One of the things that resonates with me that you said is he or she that controls the narrative controls the game. And right. definitely we've got to make bigger investments in getting the truth out there and reclaiming the narrative uh, around public safety. Thank you so much for the work that you do, not just in Los Angeles, but all over this country. And thank you for highlighting the work that our president is doing, because as you said, that message is not getting out there uh, as much as it should be. So I'm always appreciative when someone brings forth those truths. Again, thanks for joining me.